Father, thank you for what you did in sending your son. That you made him who knew no sin to be sin. Lord, not just this morning, not just for us, but Lord, you made him who knew no sin to be sin for me. That in you, I might become the righteousness of God. And the same for every person here that has believed in you. God, we need you. We need you today to come and to destroy our unbelief. Destroy the doubt that plagues our hearts. Not just doubt in what you'll do or what will happen in the future, because we don't know, but the doubt that says that you're not good. The unbelief that says that you're not powerful or not real or that you don't actually love us. Would you please just come and put that under your feet this morning, King Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. Amen, you can have a seat. Happy Easter. He is risen. Amen, amen. He is risen indeed. If you got your Bibles, grab them. Go to Luke chapter 24. We'll be looking at verses 36, 36 through 48. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 48. The risen Christ. The risen Christ. Luke chapter 24, verse 36. This is the word of the Lord. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. Let's pray one more time. Father, thanks for today. Thank you, Jesus, that even right now in this moment that you are risen, that you have given your spirit, that you know every heart here, you know every thought and every intention. We pray that you would be Lord over our time together here today, and that you would do the miracle of opening the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If 
you or I would have been there. We most likely would have puked or thrown up. At the very least, we would have probably shielded our eyes and turned away in absolute horror at what it would have looked like to see Jesus hanging on the cross. For those of you that call Mercy Hill home, you know, over the last couple weeks, we've been looking at Psalm 22, which is a, a graphic picture of the cross written prophetically a thousand years before it was ever written, not just a view of the cross, but from the cross and the pain that Jesus went through there. I don't think you can overstate just how horrible it would have been if you were listening to what Christina read out of Isaiah 53 in between some of the songs there. There's a verse in Isaiah 53 that um, says that he was, he was marred beyond the appearance of a man, beyond recognition. And again, what the cross is, it's a lot of things, but one of the things that it is, is it is a picture of what God thinks of sin. And just like Christina read, the punishment that brought us peace, the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. It was the punishment that we deserve. But if you can try to imagine what these disciples who are hiding in the upper room here must have felt, and really the, the trauma that they must have felt. I don't know if you guys have ever had that experience, like I have, I'm sure many of you have, of maybe walking into the hospital, to a hospital room or to the ER, and seeing a loved one that maybe has been in an accident um, or maybe had a surgery or whatever, and just the, you know, they got the tubes maybe hooked up to them and maybe they're unconscious and all the monitors and stuff going around. I mean, there's a sense in which even when you don't go through it, it's, it's, a, it's a traumatic thing to, to witness even in somebody else. And again, if you can just take those types of experiences and magnify them times a thousand, we might be getting somewhere close to what the disciples must have experienced when they saw Jesus um, hanging on the cross. Uh, but as traumatic as the cross was, one of the things I want to argue for this morning is that it wasn't just the trauma and the violence that they saw on the cross that has them hiding out here in, the, in this room by themselves now. It wasn't the violence of the cross, but it was the unbelief in their hearts. The unbelief in their hearts that had them hiding here in fear. And what you see the risen Christ doing in this text is exactly what I've been praying this week and that I believe that God wants to do here among us this morning. Even though the contexts are very different and they're just you know, a few days removed from actually seeing this traumatic event of Jesus being crucified, is that the risen Christ is still doing the same thing today. Same thing he did to them, same thing he wants to do with us here this morning, is that he wants to come near and he wants to pull out of us all of the doubt and all of the unbelief that says that God will not keep his word and that God is not good. God always keeps his word. Every man is a liar, but God is not. 
he will always do exactly what he says he's going to do. I want you to look very closely at verse 38. It's kind of the key here, and it's actually somewhat of a very uh, beautiful, um, colorful verse when you just sit in the language for a little bit. But Jesus shows up, he says, peace to you. They were all locked behind closed doors. This is now the risen Christ. Um, His body is not the same as it was, although he still has a physical body. He can just show up um, behind closed doors. They are frightened and they are startled. And the word for frightened there uh, in the original language in the Greek is, has the word phobia in it. It's from where we get our English word phobia. It's, it's a deep, deep, deep fear. Okay? But verse 38, look at what Jesus says. It says, And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts or unbelief arise in your heart? Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in in your heart. Do you guys remember that classic scene from Jurassic Park where they're sitting in the car and things haven't gone really bad yet, but there's that little cup of water sitting in the cup holder, and all of a sudden you boom, and you see the water begin to shake. Like, what was that? What was that? And then boom, boom, and the water begins to shake. That's the word here for troubled. Is it their hearts begin to shake? They're troubled. It says, why do doubts arise in your heart? Circle the word doubts there. It's, it's literally, in the Greek, it's a very cool word. It, it literally means inner dialogue. For those of you that like this kind of nerdy stuff, it's the word dialogesmos. It's from where we get the, our word, English word dialogue. And it's this idea of this internal conversation that's going on in your heart. And I love that because when you think about it, that's what doubts are, is we... Uh, um, we have this internal conversation with ourselves. Like, did, did he just really say that? Did she just really say that? Oh, no, she didn't. Oh, my goodness. I don't, you know, and she, and like, in different conversations, but with, with Jesus here and with God and the things that he says is we have this inner dialogue going on where we doubt whether or not what he says is true. And then lastly, these doubts begin to arise. And this word arise is really cool, too. It's the idea, it's, it's used in other places in the, in the New Testament where Peter goes and he takes a line and a hook and he throws it into the water and he draws out a fish. Arises, the idea of drawing out. It's the idea of a plant uh, and a seed that's planted and a plant slowly arising up out of the ground. Okay? And here's why I wanted us to sit in that verse for a little bit. It's when our hearts become troubled they begin to tremble. And when that inner dialogue begins to really take over and come to the surface, what most of us tend to do, even as Christians, and sometimes especially as Christians, is we, uh, we think, oh man, I've, I've somehow I've gotten away from God. He must be, he must be distant, and we, I, I, I gotta find him. I must have somehow not, you know, taken a wrong turn somewhere. And, uh, and now I'm away from him and all of a sudden we're living in all this doubt and all this anxiety and in all this fear. But I want you, what I want you to see here this morning is that their hearts are troubled and these doubts, this inner dialogue, rises to the surface. Not because Jesus is far off, but because he's right there in front of them. That when the risen Christ comes near, 
and begins to work in your life. What he wants to do in your heart, I believe this morning in each one of our hearts, myself included, is the same thing he wanted to do then. He draws near in order to draw out that doubt. He draws near in order to draw out the doubt and the unbelief. God always, always, always keeps his word. And it was unbelief that kept them in fear. It is unbelief that is at the heart of all of our sin and all of our rebellion. Unbelief uh, in the Bible is not just a lack of having the facts or lack of having the information, okay? Unbelief is a denial of the truth. That's the way the Bible speaks of unbelief and of doubt. It's not that, they, it's not that these guys didn't have all the information, as we'll see here. Jesus told them that this was going to happen. It's not that they didn't have the information. For many of you, for all of you here this morning, again, myself included, wherever in your life you're not believing in, in Jesus, whether it's as somebody who's never surrendered their, their life to Jesus Christ and has entered the kingdom of God and been born again, or whether you've been walking with the Lord for many years but you still struggle with fear and anxiety and doubt and worry and you're not practically following him as Lord, it all comes back to unbelief. And that you do not believe that God will keep his promises, and that he will always do exactly what he says he's going to do. But he will. He will. <laughs> he will. The risen Christ is not afraid of our unbelief, but he draws near in order to draw it out in love. Um, yeah, and I don't, you know, Luke was the author of this, of this gospel. We know from other places in the scripture that Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. Um, James, I was thinking about you this past week. James is an eye doctor. Say hi, James. Happy Easter, James. Nice pink tie, James. Looking good, buddy. He had no idea I was going to do that this morning. He's like, what's happening? But I was thinking about James this past week and how difficult it would be for James to do his job when somebody maybe gets something in their eye and he's got an emergency call and he's got to pull that thing out. If he had to try to do that from a distance, it wouldn't just be difficult, it would be impossible, right? <laughs> in, order, in order to do what he's got to do to draw that out so that they can see, he has to draw near. Any doctor, any sort of practice, they're going to be helpful. They've got to draw near in order to, to draw it out. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. And, and I think that um, Luke, the inspired writer, gives us kind of three reasons uh, as, to, as to how uh, and why we should be able to believe in the risen Christ and why, and why unbelief and doubt, wherever it exists in our heart, um, is, is a sin and is rebellion. Against, against God. But he gives us kind of three cures here, three cures here for our doubt and for our unbelief. And I believe they're just as applicable to us this morning in this moment uh, on this Easter, this Easter Sunday morning as they were to these disciples nearly 2,000 years ago. So Jesus draws near to draw, draw it out. And here's, what, here's the first thing that he gives them, is he just gives them the reality of the resurrection. The reality of the resurrection. It says, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? 
And then he says, see my hands and my feet. These hands and these feet that had just been pierced a few days earlier. That it is I myself, touch me and see. He's with real people in a real room, in real time, space, history, just like we are today, 2,000 years ago. And he says, come near and see. Touch my hands. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And they're still disbelieving for joy, which is an interesting phrase, verse 41. And then he takes a piece of fish. I don't know that he was really hungry, but he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat just to make you feel better. It's kind of like when somebody cooks you a bad meal and you don't really want to eat the meal, but you don't want to make them feel bad. And so you just take a bite anyway. But um, here he's not doing it you know, because they cook something that he doesn't like, but because he's trying to overcome their unbelief. He takes the fish and he eats it proving to them that they're not just seeing a ghost, but that he has a real body. The reality of the resurrection has stood for 2,000 years. You might be here this morning, and you might be a skeptic. You might not be a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm glad that you're here. We believe that this message has the power to change every single person's life, if they will believe it. Um, But uh, for 2,000 years, the resurrection has stood every assault um, of skeptics and of doubters and of people that have tried to disprove it. And you might say to me this morning, Eric, you can't prove to me that Jesus rose from the dead. I'd say, no, I actually can, but I'm going to here in a little bit. But you say I can't prove that he rose from the dead, but here's one thing I know for certain. You can't prove that he didn't. This is what differentiates Christianity from every other religion in the world. You cannot prove. For 2,000 years, people have not been able to prove that he didn't rise from the dead. They haven't. Um, And so Jesus here draws near and, and again the point being is, is if you think about if you think that Christianity or the resurrection is just some sort of conspiracy theory okay 2020 has been a petri dish for conspiracy theories among other things but but let's take some classic conspiracy theories Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and oh yeah I knew this was gonna happen yeah Bigfoot I, if, if you're that guy I'll talk to you later okay um <laughs> It's not where I'm going. Sit, don't get so excited. But Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. Bigfoot. You've got this kind of like, you know, that, big, that shadowy figure kind of shuffling through the woods. It's Bigfoot. It's a Sasquatch. And it's, you know, and, and like maybe one, and one dude who isn't the most reliable guy said that he saw, but yeah, yeah, it must be true. And we go after you, you know, and everybody's hunting for Bigfoot. Loch Ness Monster, probably an old log. Float, I know, you're so just, I don't mean to burst your bubble, but probably like a log with a little branch sticking out and, you know. Ah, there's something there. Okay. You understand that that's not what this is. You understand that? Jesus doesn't like just kind of like whizz through the room and they're like, what was that? Did you see that? And they're like, no, I didn't see that. And somebody else says, well, you know, I think I saw something. That's not what this is. Come here. 
Touch my hands. See my feet. Give me some fish to eat. That rhymed. I didn't mean for that to rhyme at all. Um, I like when that happens. Anyway, uh, (laughs) like every doubt that they have, he's not running from. He's not just trying to pull something over on them. He's taking their doubt and he is confronting it head on with the reality that he has conquered death, that he has risen. And again, his, his hands, that they were pierced for our transgressions, for our sins. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. By his stripes we were healed. You can tell a lot of man by looking at his hands, can't you? I've used this before, I wouldn't do this to everybody, but he's my dad, so I always say, if you ever shake my dad's hand, you, you might think you grabbed like a five-pack of Johnsonville sausages or something like that. He's just, got, he's just got thick fingers. He hasn't gotten those from doing paperwork all his life, right? He's got them from working, doing things. When you tell about Jesus, what can you tell about this man, this God-man by his hands? That he went to the cross. And he did, he did what only he could do. Um, one of the most popular theories throughout history, again, is, that, uh, is the hallucination theory. Although there is no really good theory. Again, when I say one of the best, one of the best theories, this is like the best they got. The skeptics. They say that, well, the disciples, he didn't, Jesus didn't really rise, but they all hallucinated. Okay, if you've ever known somebody who's hallucinated, here's the thing. They, you know, they probably weren't the most trustworthy person, but let's just say you might, they might say that this hallucination or this dream or this vision that they had is real. But people never hallucinate in groups, right? They don't. And this isn't just to an individual, this is to a group of people. Later on in Corinthians, Paul writes again, just, just you know, two decades removed from the resurrection and the crucifixion, uh, that there was, Jesus at one time appeared to a group of 500 people all at the same time. You don't have group hallucinations. This is, this is real. And Jesus draws near um, uh, to declare this. Michael Green, uh, who's a scholar and commentator, says this. He says, Christianity does not hold the resurrection to be one of many tenets of belief. Without faith in the resurrection, there would be no Christianity, Christianity at all. The Christian church would never have begun. The Jesus movement would have fizzled out like a damp squib with his execution. Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. Once you disprove it, then you have disposed of Christianity. But that has never happened. Because people cannot refute the resurrection. Even every secular historian worth his salt will say that Jesus Christ was a real historical figure. He really lived, he really died, and then something happened. And then they want to come up with hallucination theory or the swoon theory, which is that he was never really, he never really actually died, but you know, he was just put in the grave and then somehow he snuck out past the guarded tomb, rolled away the stone, even though he just had his hands and his feet pierced, and then he walked seven miles on the road to Emmaus, and then he disappears. We know what happened. 
It's the resurrection. And again, these same disciples who are, who are scared and fearful, um, just a month and a half after this time, Peter's going to stand up and he's going to boldly proclaim the resurrection. The first sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Again, he's, he's, they knew about Jesus. He was a real person. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by. A little while later in his sermon, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. The same person who was afraid here in the upper room is now boldly proclaiming this. And again, here's the apologetic point. Is that if you are the Pharisees, if you are the very people that had Jesus crucified, that's who Peter's preaching to. If you want to call Peter a crazy man, if you want to end this whole thing before it starts, all you have to do is go get the dead body. But there wasn't a body. It wasn't a dead body to go get because he'd been risen. Jesus confronts, confronts our unbelief with the, reality of, the, re- of the res- reality of the resurrection. Secondly, he confronts our unbelief with the reliability of the scriptures. With the reliability of the scriptures. So after he shows them his hands and his feet, And he eats the fish in front of them. Verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's the entire Old Testament. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the prophets would have been all the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all the minor prophets, and the Psalms, the entire Old Testament. It's all ultimately about him. For those of you that call Mercy Hill home, you know the last couple weeks we've been looking at Psalm 22, just one of these places where there's at least four major prophecies that are written a thousand years before the crucifixion ever happens and take place exactly as David said that they would in that Psalm. And again, Jesus is confronting them here with the reality of the truth of his word, that it's always, always, always true. And again, we, we skip over this a lot, um, but the way that the Bible was set up in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and all the prophecies that are given about Jesus that he fulfilled when he came, is it, God could not have done more to say, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Another interesting um, study here that was done by a guy named Peter Stoner. I believe it was back in the 1960s. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, Science Speaks. This, um, this book and this study that Peter Stoner did uh, 
was verified by a committee from the American Scientific Affiliation. I don't know, those guys sound important. They sound like they know what they're doing. But um, they verified this study, this mathematical uh, statistical study that Peter Stoner did. And here's what he did. He took all of the prophecies in the Old Testament and he just picked eight of them. All the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus, I should say. And he took eight of them and he ran the mathematical probabilities of of the chances of one person fulfilling just eight prophecies in their lifetime that were written a thousand years before they ever happened, okay? Here's what he came up with, and again, this was verified to be accurate by the American Scientific Affiliation. He says, we find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled eight prophecies is one to 10 in the, is one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, listen, if you struggle with math, I'm with you, but, but we'll just try to run with this here. That's a, that's a one with 17 zeros behind it. I don't even know what that number is, okay? But the chance of one person fulfilling eight prophecies in their life would be one in 10 to the 17th power. To give an idea of how many that is, one, if you took this many silver dollars, okay, so if you took um, 10 to the 17th power silver dollars, and again, it's beyond millions and billions and trillions, whatever that is, but if you took those silver dollars, it would be enough to cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. Then what you would need to do is you would need to mark one of those silver dollars with a red X, or mark it somehow, you know, draw a smiley face on it, I don't care, toss it into the pile, mix it all up, blindfold yourself, walk randomly across the state of Texas, pick one place to bend down in the two feet high pile of silver dollars, pick it up, and that's the chance. And the ch if, if you would grab that silver dollar with the red X on it, that's the chances of one person being able to fulfill just eight prophecies in their lifetime that were this specific, written a thousand years before they ever happened. That's just one out of eight. Jesus fulfilled over 300. The reason you do not believe in Jesus this morning is not for lack of proof. Unbelief has nothing to do with lack of information. Unbelief has to do with a denial that God is who he says he is. but Jesus still loves us. And he draws near to draw it out. And again, he points them back to the scriptures. He says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then verse 45, and I don't, I don't have time to go into all this this morning, but this is gold right here. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, now God has the ability to, again, open our minds to understand the scriptures, but, but don't miss the key here is that the key to understanding the scriptures is to understand that they're all about him if you will begin to read this book saying what does it say about the nature and character of God and what does it say about Jesus Christ and about how he and what does it say about how how about how he is for me what I could not be for myself and how he does for me what I cannot do for myself if you read the Bible asking that question like how is Jesus the hero what has he done that I can't do it's gonna help unlock your mind to the scriptures. 
just like he did for them. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And again, this has been the theme. If you, for those of you that were reading Luke 24 this past week as part of our Bible reading plan, at, at the first resurrection story at the beginning of Luke 24, the women go to the tomb and they're confronted by these angels. And they say to him, verse 6, he is not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you? He told them this was going to happen? Then verse 8 says, and they remembered his words. When he's walking with the two guys on the road to Emmaus, they don't understand what's happening, and Jesus is walking with them. Verse 25, and he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's saying, I, I, I told you this. But again, they were blinded by this worldly, fleshly paradigm that they had of this conquering Messiah that was going to come and fulfill all their dreams rather than the crucified Messiah that needed to come and die for their sins. And that's still why we miss him, by the way. Because we don't understand just how much our sins cost. And how you can't even get to first base with a holy God unless there's been some sort of provision made for your sins that we could approach him. And God has made a way through his son, Jesus Christ. So he confronts their unbelief with the reality of the resurrection, the reliability of the scriptures. And finally, here, he confronts it, and this is going to happen with them and also going forward, but he confronts unbelief by the repentance of his people. The repentance of his people. Verse 46, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things, is that these same people who were hiding out, who abandoned him at the cross, who all fled when they came to arrest him, and Peter, the leader of the crew, the leader of the gang, denies him three times. These same people uh, are going to, almost all of them, except for maybe the Apostle John, and he didn't die, but he was boiled alive in oil, so I don't know that he really and he survived somehow anyway so I don't know that that's really a win but anyway they are all going to give their lives for this message eventually they're going to give their lives for it completely unashamed again in regards to the resurrection people say well they just made it up they just got together and they concocted this conspiracy and they made it up But were they, would they really be willing to give their lives and die as martyrs for something that they know is a lie? And let me, let me just go down this rabbit trail for just a second because sometimes people are willing to give their lives for a lie. When men flew planes into the World Trade Centers, they were willing to give their lives for a lie. But here's the, here's the difference. They thought that the lie was true. They believed something that was false, but they believed it, but they believed wrongly. Here's the difference with the disciples, is that they are not just believing a lie that they think is true. If they made this whole thing up and were willing to give their lives for it, then they're believing a lie that they know is a lie. Does that make sense? They know that this is a lie. They know that they've concocted this whole thing. 
and that they've made it up. And again, people might be willing to run with their life for a while, but not when it comes down to costing them their lives. Um, in Acts chapter 4, again, Peter's standing up and preaching. They've now been arrested. And he stands up and he preaches in front of the people that arrested him for preaching the resurrection from the dead. And they asked him, and they said, by what power, what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, we are, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Again, he's preaching the resurrection. If it's not true, all they have to do is go get the body. And a few verses later, though, it says that these people that arrested him, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The Bible matters. The resurrection matters. This is not a fairy tale. But the other thing that God uses to bring people to repentance and to crush unbelief in their hearts is the reality of a changed life. He brings people to repentance. In fact, in just a few minutes, we're going to witness a lot of young ones today, but some young, some adults that are going to get in the water. We're going to take them down. We're going to bring them back up because Jesus commanded us to do this. It's not the only way that we witness, but it's one way that we witness. And the witness is that when they believed in Jesus Christ, that they died with him, that they were raised with him, that their life is no longer their own, but that they were bought with a price, they belong to him, and that all of their sin has been washed away. That they've repented and they have received the forgiveness of sins. Again, when you see the word repentance here, listen, we never make any excuse for sin. God hates sin so much he sent his son to die for it, to be rid of it because he was not willing to sweep it under the rug. But when we see repentance, it's not so much the idea of sinless perfection as it is a change of direction. Not sinless perfection, but a change of a direction. That these people that are going to get in the water today, they're going to give testimony to the fact that I once was living for myself, but now I'm living for Jesus. And I've turned and I'm going to follow him. I'm going to go where, and I'm going to go where he wants me to go. And throughout history, this is how the church has been built, through the lives of people that have recognized Jesus as Lord and have repented and turned to him for eternal life. Finally, Josh, if you can put that, that chart up there, again, the repentance of his people. This is kind of a classic, uh, kind of apologetic little flow chart here uh, that Josh McDowell um, has made popular over the years. But it's this idea that with Jesus, and what we know about him, there's only three options with what you can say about him. And those three options are that he was either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Those are your three options. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed that he would rise, that he would die, and that he would rise again on the third day, and then, and then he did it. If those claims were false, first of all, then there's two alternatives. One, he knew that his claims were false. He made a deliberate misrepresentation and tried to mislead many people. And therefore, he is a liar, he's a hypocrite, probably demon-possessed, and in the end, he was an absolute fool because he died for this lie that he knew was a lie. 
The other option, if it's false, is that he did not know that his claims were false. He was just saying, you know, yeah, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again on the third day. Then he was sincerely deluded. He was crazy. He was a lunatic. That's your other option. He was either a liar or he was a lunatic. Or thirdly, and this is the option that I would set before you as true, he is Lord. He is Lord. His claims were true. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. He showed up. He didn't just run through the woods like Bigfoot, but he came. He let him see his hands and his feet, and he appeared to people in groups. He ate in front of them, and then finally they saw him go back into heaven, and he said, in the same way I go is the same way I'm going to come back, and there are two options with that. You either accept him, receive him as Lord of your life, or you reject him, but men and women I'm telling you, those are the options. You have a choice to make this morning as to whether you think he's a liar, a lunatic, or his Lord. Amen? Worship team, you can come up. And I'm going to close. A couple questions as we do. And if, for those of you that are getting baptized, you can go out and go out the back hallway and we'll go here in just a second number one what's troubling your heart this morning what's troubling your heart what have you been troubled with this past week maybe your heart's been troubled because you don't know where you would spend eternity if you died today that's a reason to be troubled that's a legitimate reason What I've shared with you this morning is that salvation, eternal salvation, can be found in no other name except the name of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that you are saved, it is by grace through faith that you are saved, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not by works so that no man can boast. These folks that are going to get wet here in a little bit, that is not going to save them. It is a picture of what happened at their salvation. A man is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The only thing you can do is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And in believing, in truly believing in him, you along with that, you repent. Faith is turning towards Christ. Repentance is turning away from everything else and turning towards him. But for those of you that know Jesus as your Savior, what troubled your heart this past week? What stirred the waters? And again, I want to argue that it's not because God's distant, it's because he's coming near. But he's drawing near because he wants to draw that out. Don't let unbelief and doubt rule your life. We have no reason to doubt the promises of God. God always keeps his promises. And that if you have been forgiven, if you have accepted the gift of salvation that is freely offered in Jesus Christ. Then just as also Nate read this morning from from Romans chapter 8, there is absolutely nothing, nothing that can separate you from his love. 
that whenever the waters of your heart begin to be troubled, all you have to do is come back again to his word and claim his promises. Because he never lies. He never lies. He always does exactly what he says that he will. Bow your heads with me. Father, thanks for today. Thanks for your word. Thanks not only for your death, but thank you for your willingness to draw near and to draw out our unbelief and to take it out of the eyes of our hearts so that we could see, so we can know you. Father, I pray that as we stand and as we sing and I pray that as we worship you by uh, baptizing these folks and, and giving testimony to what you have done in their lives, Father, I pray that through the proclamation of your word and the power of your spirit and the gathering of your people, that you would impart great faith to us to believe all that you say that is true. That we would stop doubting and just believe you. That we would believe you that even in the midst of like a crazy year this past year, and last year, you know, we, we, weren't, we didn't even gather on Easter Sunday like we are today because of COVID and all that was going on. But Lord, you've been faithful. No matter what's going on in the world, Father, I pray that this morning that every heart here would trust you. That you would put that unbelief under your feet. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Come again and inhabit the praises of your people as we sing. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.